I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we are recently back from a trip to Chicago, which was fantastic. It was. Thank you so much, everyone who came to see us in Chicago. We went there for a live show at C2E2, uh, which is a convention of all kinds of pop culture, video game, entertainment, comic book, that kind of stuff. And also... A Stuff You Missed in History Class live show. Yeah. That's like the most dangerous work trip for me to go on because as Tracy knows, I bought a lot of art on the show floor. <laughs> yep. Yep. You you definitely had art on your mind on the show floor. I did. It's a problem. Basically, I can't yep. I can't walk by a good drawing of Greedo. That's the bottom <laughs> line. So, yeah, we had a great time in Chicago. We had a great audience. Uh, you, you all were awesome. You basically filled a whole room. For us to talk about the history of pizza. And now we are going to share that episode with the rest of our listeners who could not be there with us. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to include just the live show part of, of the show that we did live in Chicago. Um, and I have a couple notes just before we get into that. Uh, one is that the microphones that we were on were a little less forgiving of us popping our peas than the ones in our studio. <laughs> uh, so there's a little bit more of that in this episode. And they were also push to talk microphones. And we were really good about pushing when we were talking. Uh, not 
as good about continuing to push when the audience is making noise. So our producer, Noel, uh, has, has helped us with that. But if you notice anything that sounds a little odd, that's probably why. And we should also mention that normally, if you listen to our show, you know that we, we run a pretty clean ship here. We usually keep a family friendly, but there are some illusions in this particular episode. Anytime there's a live show, it tends to get a little looser. Uh, so we do mention intoxicating substances that probably we would not be joking about if we were doing our normal studio record. Just know that those are there and brace. <laughs> Try not to faint <laughs> when you hear references to the consumption of alcohol. Uh, so let let's get to it. Hi there. Can everyone hear me? I have to say you guys are amazing because she sat there politely and waited for hi everybody to like greet us. So you're incredible. Also, these microphones are pushed to talk. So that means I have been well trained from all my years playing World of Warcraft. It's been a long time though. Don't ask me about anything recent. It's weird walking around Chicago because it kind of feels like we're inside a stream of our podcast. That's true. I haven't gotten to walk around as much as you. Uh, So I'm just kind of in my own head in the stream of our podcast. It's it's like that in Boston too, but in Boston I'm used to it now, so it's not quite a, as much of a big deal. I made a little Chicago podcast tag. Who comes to our website ever? Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I decided to make a little Chicago podcast tag to kind of round up a lot of our Chicago stuff, and we have some cool people like Catherine Dexter McCormick, whose family name you may recognize from the building we're in. Uh, that's pretty cool. And then we have Henry Gerber and Chicago Society for Human Rights. Also cool. So some sadness there, but generally cool. Uh, but then the next thing that comes after that in the list is the Christmas tree ship. Wah, wah. <laughs> the, then we have the Iroquois Theater Fire. I'm laughing that there's repeated doom. It, it is repeated doom. Uh, after that, we had uh, Maria Tallchief, who was uh, a, a Native American ballet dancer and danced in Chicago. Frances Glessner Lee and her tiny forensic, the little dioramas that she made. Jane Adams, who's awesome, mother of social work. And then we're back into Chicago darkness with H.H. H. Holmes. I'm not going to read all of them. But yeah, when I was putting that together, I thought some of this is very dark. Uh, before we launch into pizza party time, sidebar, don't think there's pizza under your seat. This is an Oprah. <laughs> I tried to make a pitch that the cheese would make it stick really well, but nobody would go for it. There was some health code. I don't know. But what it's I because like- I spent two years of my career writing about food safety. She did. Uh, I think we should start by saying hello and welcome to the podcast, which we forgot to do the last time we did one of these live. <laughs> Who should start? I'll do it. Okay. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, we are going to talk about pizza today. We're going to talk about pizza in kind of three arcs. We're going to talk about the ancient precursors to pizza. And also, uh, obviously, pizza in Italy, because that's really the birthplace of pizza. Uh, and then we're going to talk about pizza in America and the rest of the world all together. And then a little bit of wackadoodle pizza trivia at the end. So uh, lots of societies eat stuff on flatbread. I know that's a shocker. Uh, <laughs> uh, pizza, not really strictly Italian if you want to think of it in the flatbread arena. Like pizza crust is sort of like a cousin to other flatbreads. Like think of pita and tortillas and lavash. 
and maybe even Neolithic peoples. Yes, there's actually some evidence that uh, Neolithic man cooked uh, like batter on hot stones. And we there is also some evidence that they actually used sauces on top of it. So they were totally onto this jam way before we thought anybody was eating pizza. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty inventive. You know, hey, that rock. That's pretty hot from the sun. What could I put on that and make it delicious? That's actually how I uh, lived my first five years. I was really a forager child. Enfant terrible. I thought you were going to say in college. Also that. I mean, to be frank, it's blurry, but I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) So uh, even when you get to Italy, there were things that were were flat pizza-like things, like torta, which was like that. But, but uh, wait, but wait, am I, am I, am I we rushing ahead? We haven't talked about Greece yet, Tracy. What? So Greece really got closer to the Italian flatbread situation. And it's actually, you could say that pizza was seeded in Greece because they made flatbreads. This sounds so freaking delicious to me because they would put oil on them with herbs and sometimes dates and maybe some other little toppings and things like honey. Doesn't that sound sort of yummy? I want that for breakfast. And then it was actually around 600 BCE that a Greek settlement was formed in what is modern-day Naples. And pizza sort of traveled to that new location along with the people that settled there. Is this where we get to torta? We can. (laughs) We also should mention that Egyptians also ate flatbread. So the Mediterranean was totally on to the flatbread thing. So that you all will not think I totally don't know what I'm doing. I have written down, Holly has lots. It's okay. I'm going to do the exact same thing in just a little while. <laughs> Great so with we're stage good. directions. Uh, tell me about Egypt. Uh, I pretty much did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they did. They had flatbreads as well. Very similar. Very simple. A little bit of oil. Just your basic drizzle. Like a precursor to white pizza even. Yes. A glimpse of what happens in our studio when Holly and I record together and then later... Our producer, Noel, makes it sound like we knew what we were doing. The truth is, Noel is the only one with a clue. (laughs) Now, Tracy's smart, and then I usually talk about my cats and get derailed. (laughs) All right, I just heard the cat ladies in the house. Yeah. Y'all are the ones writing to us about how I should have blocked that shawl I knitted, right? That wasn't the problem. So, okay, torta is like pizza, flatbread with stuff. Except that, weirdly, the bread part was not really edible, and that's weird to me. Like, how do you make an... I know how you make an inedible bread, by doing it badly, but, like, why would you do it on purpose? I can't speak to that, because I would probably still try to eat it. But there was also an interesting thing going on in Rome, where the Romans had a pizza-like food. And braced for this a little bit. Uh, so it was made, it sounds very delightful, with wheat flour, cheese, oil, honey, and bay leaves. But it had an unfortunate name, which was placenta. <laughs> It's probably pronounced differently, but when you read it on the page, that's a laugh riot. Uh, but before you giggle, uh, they kind of had the word first before our current, you know, use of it uh, from the Greek word plaque, which plaques, which actually means a flat surface. So they were making a flat surface that was also edible. So it's less icky when you think about it in those terms. When we had dinner last night and we were going over our notes, Holly was like, did you find the thing about placenta? And I was like, no, and don't tell me. I want to be surprised with everyone else about what you're talking about. So now you can just stroll about and talk about how delicious placenta is. 
And you can be like, you can go totally pedantic and be like, it's historically accurate, y'all. Like, just really, anybody that gives you side eye, just really get down on them about how they don't know history. It'd be awesome. Then go lob that into like a mom blog and see what happens. (laughs) What do you have next on your list, Holly? Uh, Virgil and the Aeneid. Go for it. Okay, so even in the Aeneid, they talk about pizza. Like, this stuff is ubiquitous throughout history. Uh, there is a story, there's a reference in the Aeneid where they talk about a hero's feast and they feature cakes of bread that are loaded with delicious things. And then it ends with, see, we devour the plates on which we fed. That's basically what pizza is for, eating a thing where you are also eating the plate that it is served on. Uh, unless you're eating one that needed a knife and fork. That's just like early recycling. <laughs> Like, so just eat your paper plates going forward. <laughs> what came after Virgil? Uh, you know, in 79 BCE, there's evidence of pizza in Pompeii. And then you have a bunch of stuff before we get to my next thing. Do I? Because my notes pick up in 1544. You certainly do. Okay. I'm shocked. <laughs> so w- when we say pizza today, even though there are white pizzas, we it's in our head, flatbread. Tomatoy sauce, cheese, right? So that's sort of quintessentially the pizza thing. And that really didn't come around until 1544 because this is after the Columbian exchange. It's after Christopher Columbus went to the Americas, came back to Europe with pizza, not with pizza, with tomatoes. <laughs> the original 30 minutes or less. <laughs> yeah. So he went all, he, I'm going to say flew. He, he sailed. <laughs> this is not drunk history, I promise. I think- <laughs> Did you miss Columbus in history class? <laughs> because I'd be all right if we did. Oh, I took an entire class on Columbus in college okay. called Columbus and New World Literature that was all his diaries and the men around him writing. That actually sounds kind of interesting. It was. It was pretty cool. So he brought tomatoes. He brought tomatoes back to Europe. And that is the uh, first recorded incidence of tomatoes in Italy is in 1544. Uh, and pizza then in Naples grew into this cheap, easy food, mostly for working poor people to eat. Did you find the bit in your research about how allegedly most people in Europe thought tomatoes were poisonous at first? I did not find that in my research, but I have heard that. Yeah, they allegedly didn't, but the southern Italians were like, we're down. There are also nightshades, right? And there are definitely deadly nightshades. We know that from reading Harry Potter. <laughs> or Nightmare Before Christmas. I have that vessel on my dining room table at home. I was with you when you purchased it. (laughs) That is true. It was at Disney World, thus closing the circle on our references to other things in our podcast. Uh, What have you got next in yours? Uh, So... As pizza became more popular, there was criticism of it, even as it was starting to happen, and it was catching on with sort of the the lower classes, where the thought was that pizzerias were where bad people hung out and miscreants. This would continue into modernity. I thought you were going to say Montgomery, and I'm like, what about Montgomery? (laughs) Then we're going to talk about Alabama pizza. Right? So, yeah, it was like considered, uh, if you had an establishment where people might go and hang out to eat pizza, although most of it was street food, which we're going to talk about more, it was kind of like, oh, that's that's where dangerous and shiftless types clump. Because throughout history, rich people have been afraid of poor people. And we should point out, too, that at this point, the pizzas that were going on were still very similar to the ones that came over from Greece. That very similar um, honey, oil, bay leaves, a little bit of soft cheese. 
Yeah, and it was really about having a, a simple, easy thing that you could buy quickly. You could eat it on the go, you know, on the street, on the way to work, while you were doing your work. You didn't have to sit down and, and bring out utensils and have this lengthy thing. You could stop at a cart, get the thing, eat it on your way. And the earliest pizzerias that we know of, uh, and I might butcher some of this Italian, not my uh, zone of knowledge, were uh, Zicciccio, which was formed in 1727, Capasso, which opened in 1750, and Da Pietro, which formed in uh, 1760. That one eventually became known as Pizzeria Brandi, and that'll become important in a story we're about to get to. I think you're going to tell that story. I am. Is it which story is it? It's oh, no. the Cinderella story of pizza. Oh, that is correct. It, it is ahead of a thing that I had in, in my notes. So, uh, Queen Margarita, the wife of Umberto Primo, that's terrible Italian pronunciation. Please don't write to me about it. Uh, they went to Naples in 1889. They were tired of eating French food. So they were like, can we please eat some Italian food? And they tried several different pieces. And the queen really liked this one that had tomatoes and mozzarella and basil on it. And uh, before then, people had just basically called it mozzarella pizza, except with an Italian accent. But then they renamed it for the queen and everyone wanted it. And allegedly, she got some flack for this because she was like, you guys, this food we see poor people eating, it's freaking delicious. And a lot of other, a lot of other people at court were like, again, that's icky poor people food. Uh, <laughs> although I must cast a little bit of doubt on her taste because the lady didn't like French food. Like, yeah, that is a little strange. Suspicious. But, <laughs> But she was undaunted by this. So uh, thankfully, due to her love and her not caring what other people think, which I must applaud her for, uh, it really became just a huge sensation. And that's sort of how this, that's why they call it the Pizza Cinderella story, because this thing that came from nothing became super celebrated because one person believed in it. And it really, yeah, it completely changed how people thought about pizza, which is, which is cool. Uh, even before that, Alexander Dumas had gone to Naples in 18, 1835, and he had gotten really fixated on what people were eating in, with this pizza. And at first he was like, this is just simple food for peasants. And then he realized that people were changing up their pizza depending on what was available and what was cheap and what they didn't need to sell to somebody else to make money. And so it went from that kind of thing to after the queen got involved, this kind of thing. And it also really served to sort of endear the queen to her subjects because this wasn't that long after unification, like prior to this earlier in like three decades prior, I believe, um, Italy was still separated into a Southern and a Northern and it had unified, but she was from the North, if I remember correctly. So this kind of was like really a good endearing move for the whole country and particularly Southern Italy that they were like, Oh, she loves our food and culture. Well, she must be okay. That's very kind. What happened next? Well, next is the drama. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, it's not really drama, but I read, a, I found a really interesting thing. So you'll read in a lot of pizza history that, uh, after she had this, she gave this restaurant, which was, uh, the one that we referenced earlier, Pizzeria Brandi, the royal seal of approval. And it still sits on the wall of that restaurant today. However, bum, 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 this is where the drama comes in. So there's a really wonderful BBC article from 2012 where this food historian contests this whole story because with some digging, uh, the writer of the article discovered some things and asserts that this restaurant actually got that royal seal years before the pizza situation when it was still a wine shop. And uh, there, there's 
some indication that possibly Esposito, who was the chef that made this pizza, his relatives later down the road kind of backwards engineered history to make it look like it was for their pizza. And there's even some possibility that that letter with the royal seal isn't really from her, that it was kind of like an underling that dashed it off. If you look at it, there are pictures online, and you can see that the royal seal isn't centered. It's not in the normal place it would be on a piece of... Um, uh, correspondence from her, from like the royal household, it would be perfect, and it's not. It's down at the bottom. It should be at the top. It's off center. There's a little bit of question marks around the signature. So it's kind of an interesting uh, thing. But there's no contesting that the pizza there is delicious and everyone adores it. Yum. You also dug up a thing about how people were paying for pizza. Right. So at this point, pizza got so popular in Italy. I mean, it was basically like, uh, you know, this, a staple food. And it was so popular and so important, and particularly as an affordable meal still for the lower classes and people that didn't have a lot of money, because that's actually really why pizza comes in slices. Uh, you could buy as much as you could afford. Uh, but one of the really cool things they came up with was this thing called, uh, it was a pizza credit system called Pizza a Otto, which meant you could have this pizza today and pay for it in eight days. So like you had an eight-day period. And that it was like was a layaway like, pizza. It was like pre-Wimpy before he was trying to pay for his, his burgers the next week. And it was really just this socially accepted thing of like, of course you can eat today. We're not going to let you starve. Just in the next eight days, let's work this out. So this whole style of pizza became so culturally important in southern Italy that in the more recent time, like in the 1980s and 90s, people started trying to get it recognized with the same quality assurance standards that are used for things like wine and cheese. And I didn't write down how to say those in Italian on purpose because then I would have to try to say them in front of you all. Holly, do you want to try? I will. I will also point out that a little before this in the late 1800s was when they really started experimenting with pizza and started adding other things to it. So this is when you start getting interesting meats and slightly different cheeses and different seasonings. And this is also, the late 1800s is also when the magical and very important wood-fired brick ovens came into favor for cooking pizza. Like, if you've had it in that versus another way, you know the difference. But to go back to this association that formed in 1984, I might butcher it. That's cool. I'm doing my best. <laughs> it's the Associazione, no, Associazione Verace Pizza Napolitana. And it's, it's shortened to VPN. Uh, and this group, as Tracy said, was aimed at protecting the Neapolitan pizza. It had become so important to the cultural tradition that they recognized that other kinds of pizzas were being developed. But they really wanted to um, make that not only preserved, but also make it the standard by which all other pizza in the world would be judged going forward. Uh, I'm sorry, I rushed ahead of you because that entire development was really important to why they were doing it. Uh, they wanted to make sure that this this pizza Napolitana was made right forever, that there would be a way that this is the right way and this is the only way it's recognized. There are three legitimate styles of pizza according to this rule, and they are Margarita, Marinara, and Margarita Extra. Uh, and all of these have buffalo mozzarella in them. No other cheese is allowed. Uh, they're all really simple pizzas topped with mozzarella, tomato, and olive oil. And then the difference in between them is that the margarita has basil and the marinara has oregano and in, in garlic and garlic in it. Uh, and then there are rules about the dough. The dough is flour, salt, water, yeast, and nothing else. 
All the kneading has to be done by hand or with a mixer that will not overheat the dough. And then the dough has to be punched down and shaped by hand. It does not go into a container or a pan. It goes directly onto the surface in one of those bell-shaped wood-burning ovens that Holly was just talking about. Also in the rules, you're supposed to eat it immediately. You're not supposed to take it home. You're not supposed to reheat it. You're not supposed to, like, wander around with it, uh, letting it drip oil on things. Eat it now. Uh, and then... After this happened, the places that were doing a bad job of making this culturally important Italian pizza got shut down. It's like the meanest health code ever. It better be delicious. I don't care if your kitchen's clean. We will take your license away. Uh, as a random trivia side note that I didn't have in my notes and we didn't mention, if you wondered about where the name marinara comes from, there's a reason. It has the same root as marina, and it was considered very popular along the, the water side where fishermen needed quick food that they could eat on the run that they didn't need a plate for. If this were stuff you should know, this would be uh, Josh saying, nice, Chuck. I do I do sort of feel like if we separated out and did did corollaries, I might be more of Chuck. Really? Yeah, because Chuck and I have that hippie jam together. Okay. You know, we're, when we're in the office, we talk about a lot of hippie topics. <laughs> Just saying. It's all dogs and, you know. That might make sense, because lately Josh and I have been talking about our taxes. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> I have never talked about taxes with Chuck ever, (laughs) ever. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least. 
as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if you, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, to get back into our live show from Chicago, we are going to talk about pizza in the United States and how it is different from pizza in Italy. So to get into American pizza, first of all, we're going to hit you with some fun facts that if you are anything like my household, none of this will shock you. Uh, in the U.S., we eat a combined total estimate of three billion pizzas each year. That's billion with a B as in boy. That's a lot. Uh, that is a hundred acres of pizza a day is consumed by the likes of us. It really does. It really does say a day. When I was rereading over my notes and I was like, was that right? And I pulled my book out and yes, it is right. A day. That's 350 slices per second. So right now, 350 slices just got chomped on just then. And what that averages out to each person, including every child, is eating about 46 slices per year. When we talked about this at dinner last night, my husband was sitting next to us and he said, amateurs. <laughs> you're, you're making up for me because I don't, I don't eat that often. I did have two slices of pizza in the convention center today. I don't know if that counts. But now I think you have a lot of information about pizza in the U.S. I do. Well, yeah. So, uh, pizza made its way into the United States basically with Italian immigrants. And so any city that had an Italian immigrant population that was large enough to basically support a restaurant wound up with a restaurant that served pizza. It was just sort of a natural way of, of developing. People wanted to have food that tasted like home, and they wanted to have uh, food that was made the way that they were used to having it at home. It's the same basic story of a lot of different foods that are, you know, come from other cultures into the United States that come along with the people who are eating them uh, like they ate them at home. So the, that means uh, with with basically pizza following waves of immigration into the United States, the first license to sell pizza was in New York City, a place called Lombardi's. This is in 1905. I want to stress, this was not the first place in New York City making pizza. This was the first place in New York City 
legally making pizza. But the really cool thing was they had a super amazing setup there. Their oven, legendary. It could cook 15 pizzas at once. It was 7 feet high by 12 feet wide by 12 feet deep. This is like the serious mamma-jamma of pizza ovens. Uh, And Lombardi's would eventually expand and shift to offer some more additional general Italian restaurant type fare. Uh, And it really became a key spot in the foundation of Little Italy in New York. Uh, The next, it's not the next place ever. The next place I have written down in my notes uh, where we had pizza was in Chicago. Uh, and, and that was Granados, which was at 907 West Taylor Street. We know that they were open as of 1924 because there's a postcard that survives that is the, like the, the storefront and the, some nice text in 1924. There's some discussion about whether there was pizza being sold from, uh, from like hand carts and stuff before that. Uh, but that was the first Chicago pizza place. And Holly and I both read a very dramatic exchange in the newspaper. <laughs> Written in the 1970s, we're skipping ahead a little bit with that because uh, somebody had written about Pizzeria Pizzeria Uno as the first pizza place in Chicago. And, oh, this food critic was sorely offended. The the word livid does not really begin to describe it. And he was just like, you guys are ignoring this place that was really the first place. You don't know your history. You don't know what this is about. And, unfortunately, by that point, uh, Granados had closed. It closed in 1961. Uh, and as a consequence, because they were doing Neapolitan style, not the deep dish that Chicago is now famous for, and because it had closed, it kind of gets overlooked. But to the best of anyone's knowledge, historically, that really was the first pizzeria here. So, you know, we had, we had pizza that was spreading through different cities. Every city was having their own, if they had, you know, a large uh, Italian American immigrant population having their own pizza. I do want to stress that the reason that people forget about Granados when they're talking about Chicago history is that it, it, they were serving that, uh, you know, Neapolitan pizza. They were not serving the, the types of pizza that Chicago is famous for now. But then, after World War II, the popularity of pizza really exploded in the United States. The same thing was actually happening in Italy. Like, in Italy, uh, after World War II, as tourism was expanding, people who had started to associate pizza with Italian food would go to Italy, and they would expect to find pizza anywhere in Italy, even though it was from southern Italy, particularly around Naples. And so, like, these restaurants in northern Italy started trying to make pizza. And these first pizza attempts were not very good. They did not know what they were doing. Yeah, if you go back and look through, like, the record, I always think that uh, cookbooks are, like, one of the best history books on Earth because they'll really tell you what's going on. And if you look at, at cookbooks from Italy at the time, nowhere but around Naples did any of them feature, like, how to make pizza. It just, it really was not the national food at that point that we thought it was already, that the tourists were scuttling over there to eat. It was still really a Neapolitan thing, but all of these other pizzerias throughout Italy were like, we gotta meet demand, and that's why they got all the mediocre pizza. Yeah, it was, but some of the descriptions were really gross. They were like, and then it started out with kind of an English muffin-y situation, which you can make, you can make an English muffin pizza at home. It's a nice snack, but you don't really want to go into a restaurant expecting pizza and get a large thing with an English. That's weird. We're going to talk about some more weird pizzas later. So hold that thought. Do. So, uh, after World War II, the popularity just getting a lot. In response to a lot of things, like people are starting to move to the suburbs, 
uh, people are starting. There's a whole, that whole, uh, idea of like the fifties housewife needing to supply her family with a hearty meal that's easy to make. Like a pizza making kit started coming around. I think you had down when the first one of that was, right? Yeah, the first one was in, uh, 1948. And we should also point out that this was really a time post World War II was really when the concept of leisure culture happened in America. So pizza kind of slotted perfectly into that. Like you could use it as a party food. It was great for a snack food. It was a fun treat for kids. Like pizza really just kind of had that perfect storm of timing where it got popular here at the same time that we were kind of past the horribleness of World War II. And that idea, like she said, of like 50s housewives and the future was bright and we have time and money that we can spend on yummy, delicious treats. Pizza. Uh, the first commercial mix for pizza sauce came around at the same time. It was Roman pizza mix from Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was invented by a guy named Frank A. Fiorello in 1948. And in the 1950s was also the first time that we saw the concept of frozen pizza, which was, again, going along with that kind of, like, positivity upswing where the U.S. was was kind of into manufacturing and, and not just leisure but convenience. Uh, it's also when we started getting the really standardized franchise pizza restaurant with like the thing that uh, like regions have their their pizza that people living there identify with and that maybe people outside of that region like they you know sort of have an idea of what Chicago deep dish pizza is or like what New York style pizza is. But then there's like the ubiquitous standardized pizza that you walk into a chain restaurant to get like it is a flat thing and there's cheese and there's pepperoni and whatever on it. Uh, if you've been eating any of these, then you probably, if maybe the first time you ever try to eat a, a pizza margarita from the, the more Italian style, you're like, where's the stuff on it? Because we're used to eating at places like Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, and Domino's, which were opened in 1958-1959, and I wrote one of these dates wrong. <laughs> Uh, they were, it was all in like a two year window. All these places opened. Pizza Hut was in Kansas and Little Caesars and Domino's were both in Michigan. Uh, and none of them were founded by people who were Italian or, or were actually interested in making good pizza. They were all founded as basically a business proposition. Uh, and that is the pizza that a lot of people associate with pizza is that pizza rather than sort of the more unique individually culturally flared pizza. Yeah, I have in my notes, uh, the first Domino was in Ypsilanti, Michigan. It wasn't called Domino's yet, uh, and that was in 1960. Did I say that right? Sweet. Uh, I should know I have relatives in Michigan, but that does not confer knowledge. Uh, and and uh, uh, it became Domino's later in 1965. It, there were two brothers that founded it, and it, it started as Dominic's. And then when the one brother bought the other one out, he changed it to Domino's. The other interesting thing that's really going on at this time is that the 1950s also featured a huge uptick, again, as part of that leisure culture and a, a desire to be worldly, this fascination with ethnic foods. And so even though pizza was already here, it like that was just where it got the super foothold, so much so that people were actually scared that it was going to supplant the hot dog as the great American snack, uh, which I would argue, maybe it did. I'd be fine with that. Uh, we're coming for you, hot dogs. I love a good hot dog, but I think pizza wins for me. Sure. Tombstone pizza was introduced in 1962, although I found uh, one thing that said 1957 was actually the first frozen pizza. But these weren't originally for home eating. They were more for restaurants. Yeah, uh, Tombstone actually started as a distributor uh, that marketed their products to bars because people drink and they want a little snackaroo with their beer or their cocktail. Who doesn't? Uh, so that was really where it started, and it wasn't until they realized... 
like, oh, we're really good at this. We're really good at manufacturing pizza. And I bet we could go direct to consumer that they shifted to that model because originally it was just restaurant supply. Uh, it was also in about this time that pizza parlors started becoming a fun place for young people to hang out and work. And, of course, an also place for old people to disparage because that's where all the young people were. <laughs> that's how they did it in the old country, remember? <laughs> all right. Remember? Back in, in Italy. Uh, uh, what happened next, Holly? Well, next we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about sort of the regional styles of pizza. And then we'll get to all that fun trivia. Hooray, pizza! Uh, and we're going to talk about trivia next. But before we get to all the pizza trivia, we're going to have a little word from one of our fantastic sponsors. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if... no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we really closed out our live show with some Q&A from the audience. Uh, we're not going to have the Q&A from the audience as part of this live show because it was a little, it was mostly random stuff that folks are personally curious about. So unlike our live show on presidential assassinations where we included the Q&A because the Q&A was almost entirely about the presidential assassinations, uh we're going to we're going to end with what the actual live show part of or, or what the actual live podcast part of our live show ended with, which was uh, some interesting regional pizzas, some pizza trivia, some uh, some just personal notes about pizza. Okay, so a lot of the regional pizzas that people identify really strongly with a specific place started before the boom in standardized franchise pizzas. So, like, before things like Pizza Hut became ubiquitous, communities were already making their own unique pizzas. Who listens to Judge John Hodgman? Okay. Recently, Judge John Hodgman was uh, settling a dispute about whether white pizzas counted as pizzas or not. And he, he said that he thought New Haven, Connecticut was the center of pizza culture in the United States. I thought he was making a joke. <laughs> but no, there really is a very unique pizza culture in New Haven, Connecticut. And the pizza is kind of oblong. Uh, often the crust is a little more charred than you might see elsewhere. And one of the famous things is a clam pizza. Yeah, see, that either sounds great to you or terrible to you. I want, I do want to say it is a white pizza, so there's no, there's no tomato part in there. Uh, and that was, uh, that was created in 1925 by a guy who I think his name was Frank Pepe. I am guessing on how to pronounce that. Uh, and that is a real thing from New Haven, Connecticut. Are we ready to talk about Chicago Deep Dish? We are ready to talk about Chicago Deep Dish. <laughs> Don't get excited. That's not the whole rest of the thing. <laughs> but I do love Deep Dish. Uh, so Deep Dish, of course, as most of you probably know, was born at Pizzeria Uno, which is on the corner of Ohio and Wabash, and that was in 1943. Uh, although it did not actually go by that name until later. It was first simply called the Pizzeria, and then it was called Pizzeria Ricardo. It was not until Pizzeria Due opened that they realized they needed a Pizzeria Uno. <laughs> and that was, that was in 1955, and that's when they switched the name. We drove by there, drove, we rode in a cab by there yesterday, uh, on our way to go to the Dressing Downton exhibit, which was lovely. Uh, Pizzeria Uno was actually opened by a Texan named Ike Sewell and an Italian named Rick Ricardo, but the lore is that in fact Sewell originally wanted to open <gasps> a Mexican restaurant. 
he didn't. He wasn't really going for Italian initially until Ricardo was like, "I don't like Mexican food," and so it became a pizza place instead. Uh, and so there, there's like there are people who claim that that Ike Sewell, Sewell, however you say that, he that he invented it, and then there are also people that say that uh, his business partner partner invented it, and then there's a whole third train of thought that it was their employee, Rudy uh, Rudy Malnati. You think that's right? Sure. That's not, uh, was yeah. there a wave of disapproval from the crowd? I don't know. Okay, oh, good. She, Yay! She, I like that we have like an instant fact check. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, Malnati's grandson, who worked at Pizzeria Uno for a long time, eventually opened Lou Malnati's, which was in 1971. And then his half-brother, Rudy Jr., opened Paisano's in 1991. They're pretty much like the dynasty of Chicago pizza, really. Yeah, so uh, I think pretty much everyone agrees that Ike Sewell probably did not personally invent the deep dish pizza himself. He was just really good at marketing it. What do you have next? Do you uh, want to talk next. about more weird pizza? Yeah, next I'm kind of ready to talk about weird stuff. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about a couple other, this is definitely not all the other weird, n- not necessarily weird, unique, unique pizzas from other places around the United States. Colorado Rocky Mountain Pie is a pizza with this enormous, enormously thick crust, and you can't really eat all the saucy part and eat all the crust too, so the crust afterward is dipped in honey like it's your dessert. I'm cool with that. I like honey. Uh, yeah, this was also a time, uh, so, you know, as we get into the 60s and 70s and going forward, there were some really weird ones. This one, I did not find where people were doing this, but there was allegedly one experimentation with the concept of pizza that was fairly common in the U.S. for a little while that started with a biscuit-style crust, and then they put onion, tomato, and you may or may not groan, liverwurst on top. Half of you are like, that sounds fab. And the other half are like, oh, Tums. Um, <laughs> this is also when English muffin pizzas became a thing. And yeah. for a while, there was one particular uh, trend where you would make an English muffin pizza. And because it was on what had been considered a breakfast food up to that point, you always served it with coffee. I'm sorry. Pizza and coffee sounds gross to me. I drink coffee with everything. So I don't, uh, I have no, no gauge. You do you. <laughs> Uh, so, of course, New York City is really famous for takeout slices of pizza, uh, and that is often like a, a crust that's simultaneously crispy and chewy and definitely a lot thinner than in Chicago. And then the last, kind of odd, not really odd, I don't know why I keep saying they're odd, they're not, uh, the tomato pie in Trenton, New Jersey, where basically the cheese is under the toppings and the toppings go under the sauce, it's kind of backwards, and that's actually how a lot of the earlier pizzas in the United States were made, was with the... Uh, with the, the cheese going under the sauce. And then once you get into the 1980s, California, that was a wacky herd, uh, decided that they would kind of kick up this concept of gourmet pizza. That's like when the first barbecue chicken pizza happened and p- places like California Pizza Kitchen and Wolfgang Puck really kind of blossomed and sent that all off into just the stratosphere in terms of popularity. We should also point out that there are also a lot of other Chicago pizza styles besides just deep dish. Deep dish is sort of the thing that everyone outside of Chicago has decided as the Chicago style pizza, but there are other ones also. Um, there is stuffed pizza, which is like deep dish, but more extreme. <laughs> uh, and then I, I read some stuff about how on the south side, there's one that's like a really thin crust pizza that's a lot more similar to what was served in April. I'm glad somebody's excited. 
if we were here for longer, we would need to go on like a pizza tour and eat. You actually can go on a pizza tour. It was really important to us to see that Downton Abbey exhibit, though. There was much gasping. Uh, but th- this is not the only country that has food that people call pizza, even though other nope. styles are not really what we would look at and go, oh, that's a pizza. Well, and some of them are like uh, American people putting the word, like, nation before the word pizza to describe a food that is not recognizable. Is pizza like okonomiyaki? People call it Japanese pizza. It's not like pizza. It is like a, it, people also like to call it a pancake. It's not like a pancake either. It is like this uh, concoction of, of shredded cabbage that is, it is held together with some things that you would make a pancake or a dough out of. Uh, but then you, you top it with uh, some delicious sauce and some, some bacon or other meat. It's super good. Bonito flakes. Bonito flakes! I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Patrick has made them for me. You are a lucky woman. Yeah, but it's uh, not pizza, so stop calling it Japanese pizza. There is, there's also a pizza that's not, it's, there's also a food that's called Turkish pizza. When you hear it, you'll be like, that is not pizza. Uh, it's called Lamajun, or Lamajun, I'm not sure the exact pronunciation, but it's a flatbread, and you put mincemeat on top, and then that's sprinkled with lemon juice, like a lot of Mediterranean meat dishes are, and then it's rolled with veggies in the middle, and then sometimes sliced. That doesn't sound like pizza at all, but people call it pizza because it starts with a flatbread and meat. Do you, do you have other pizza things you want to share before I read a couple of people's just scathing words about how much they hated pizza? Read the scathing words and then we'll do fun trivia. Let's do. Okay. You, you, here's person who hated pizza, Samuel Morse, in, inventor of Morse code and pizza hate. Before she even reads this, I really feel like you need to brace for the level of ire because... That man hated pizza. (laughs) Here is how Samuel Morse, uh, inventor of Morse code and pizza hate, uh, described pizza in 1831. A species of most nauseating cake. Covered over with slices of pomodoro or tomatoes and sprinkled with little fish and black pepper and I know not what other ingredients, it altogether looks like a piece of bread that had been taken reeking out of the sewer. You want to hear somebody else who hated pizza? I only have one more. And I, I, I tried to go finding more and I was because I was like, these are great. I want to read a lot of these. Uh, and I, I could only find the two that were in the book that Holly and I each independently of one another reviewed for this uh, podcast. Carlo Colati, I think is how one says, says that, uh, who, who was the author of Adventures of Pinocchio, uh, quote, the blackened aspect of the toasted crust, the whitish sheen of garlic and anchovy, the greenish yellow tint of the oil and fried herbs, and the little bits of red from the tomato here and there give pizza the appearance of complicated filth that matches the dirt of the vendor. What a peach, (laughs) right? That guy's a jerk. You don't got to be mean to people. I have fun pizza factoids. Tell us, tell us. So my first, and these are kind of like things that in research caught my eye as delightful or interesting. Uh, so the first is that in 1954, the spectacular Sophia Loren, uh, who was born in Rome, though she grew up near Naples, uh, she was really the first one that kind of associated sex appeal with pizza when she started Loro di Napoli. She was a gorgeous pizza maker who had lost her wedding ring, which sort of today sounds like a wonderful movie as well. I'm waiting for the remake. 
in the 19, the 1960s was really when pizza had become so globally popular that both Japan and Sweden had make at home pizza kits, but of course they had very different ingredients in them. Things like ginger and bonito flakes, which we would never find in a pizza kit here. Uh, I just found that really interesting. Uh, this next one is kind of oogie. So in the 1990s, as some of you probably know, being history buffs, uh, North Korea was having a terrible, terrible famine. And that was when Kim Jong-il was like, you know what I would like? Pizza. Uh, so he actually, in a completely culturally to his own people tone deaf move, flew in a famous pizza maker from Italy just to sit in the palace and make him pizza. Uh, in 2003, we'll, we'll go to fun stuff now. In 2003, the most popular fake name that was used when placing orders with Domino's, according to Reuters, it was Paris Hilton. And then uh, th- perhaps, this is not so much a trivia, th- a thing to keep your eye out for. And if you're scared of it, you know, be ready to defend. The next big pizza craze is allegedly pizza in cones. Which exists already, but apparently it's ready to boom. It's it's going to be the next cupcake. Um, you heard it here first, or maybe not first. Maybe not first. And then I was just going to mention my favorite, or I'll ask you first. Do you have a favorite pop culture reference to pizza? Well, uh, I I don't know if I would say this is my personal favorite, but it is the one that is on written down here that is the most tied to Chicago. Who has read the Dresden Files? Tutu loves pizza. My favorite part is like Harry Dresden brings Toot Toot pizza. Toot Toot's so excited and Harry Dresden's kind of like, man, what is your deal? And he's like, haven't you ever had it? It's also much better when you hear James Marsters tell that story, which is the best way to experience the Dresden Files. Uh, mine is always going to be Panucci's Pizza on Futurama. Always. Always. Uh, including when Fry gets in a bidding war with Mom over the last anchovies on earth and it, so he can share the joy of anchovies with their with his friends who hate them how do you feel about how do, how do you feel about anchovies holly i think anchovies are the bomb uh and in fact i love them so much and my beloved husband who is here dislikes them so much and of course they um they're pervasive right like if you get they two migrate. pizzas and one has anchovies the deal is that i have to eat all of mine because we can't have it in the fridge with him <laughs> Uh, I have not been really excited about anchovies on pizza, but I have been excited about them in a good Caesar salad before. Infidel. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are occasions when Holly and I vehemently disagree with one another. Apparently, one of these is regards anchovies. No, that's better. More for me. Before Zoidberg's uh, species eats them all. Sure. I'll be working on it. So that was our live show in Chicago. Uh, we should probably clarify that Samuel Morse is actually the co-inventor of Morse code. He did not do it by himself. He and Alfred Vail worked together on Morse code uh, and other stuff relating to that whole technology. So uh, when we called him the inventor of Morse code, he's really the co-inventor. He had help. He gets the spotlight because it's named after him. Yeah. So that's why we often forget poor his poor collaborator. <laughs> This is always, not always, but often the case with collaborators. Uh, and because this live show is a little longer than one of our normal episodes, we are going to leave without doing listener mail today. This was basically uh, an event for listeners, so the whole thing is a little bit like listener mail. Um, we have gotten lots of questions as we've started doing more live shows about how people can get us to come to a place or whether we will come to a place 
For now, the best way to do that is if there is an event happening near you that you want us to come to, let the event organizers know. And if they feel like our show would be a good fit for what they're doing with their event, then they might get in touch with us. And if they do, we will talk to them about uh, what it would take for us to get out there. And we will see. Uh, we're not quite up to the Stuff You Should Know live show tour point yet that, that those guys have been doing. But uh, we've got a few of these uh, these live shows at other events under our belts now, and they are pretty fun. Agreed. And I just wanted to also make sure we thank the organizers of C2E2 for a fantastic time. Yeah, it was definitely a fantastic time. Huge thanks to the, the staff at C2E2 uh, for the folks that helped us get the recording done, uh, even though I did not think at all about how we should keep pushing the push to talk during audience responses to things. That was on me. I didn't, I didn't think, think about it either. When I thought of it was when I listened to the recording for the first time and went, oh, hey, that would have been handy. So huge thanks to the whole C2E2 team. Thanks to everybody who came out in Chicago. You were all a marvelous audience. So amazing. It's- Yes, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is also History. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, put the word pizza in the search bar. You will find lots of stuff about pizza. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find show notes for this and all of our other podcasts. The show notes for this one will include the various things that we researched before putting that live show on. You can also find an archive of every episode we have ever done. You can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts